All right, school is in session. So take your seats and turn up the volume. volume. It's time for the smartest fishing show on the internet. This is the show that dives into everything fishing from tactics and gear to policy and product. Here he is, the fishing professor, Professor Sid Dobrin. So stick around, you might learn something. Popeye the Sailor Man, I'm Popeye the Sailor Man, I'm strong to the finish cause I eats me spinach, I'm Popeye the Sailor Man, I'm one tough gazookas which hates all palookas, what ain't on the up and square, I biffs em and buffs em and always out roughs em, but none of em gets nowhere. If anyone dares to risk me fisk, it's boff and it's wham, understand? So keep good behaving, or that's your one life saver with Popeye the Sailor Man. Oh, I'm Popeye the Sailor Man. I'm Popeye the Sailor Man. I'm strong to the finish, cause I eats me spinach. I'm Popeye the Sailor Man. Doot, doot. Hey, 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 it's time for the Fishing Professor Show, and I have got that great, iconic sailor Popeye on the mind today, and I'd gladly pay you Tuesday for a cheeseburger today and bet you that you did not know all those verses to the original Popeye theme song, which was written by Fleischer Studios composer Samuel Sammy Lerner for the animated debut of Popeye in 1933. Lerner also wrote the theme song to Betty Boop, and of course, Robin Williams sang the original theme in the 1980 live-action Popeye movie that starred Williams and Shelley Duvall. And you know that little ditty that plays at the opening of Popeye theme? Well, that's the sailor's hornpipe. Which is a tune that went along with a little solo dance or jig. You can see Popeye do it in many of the cartoons. The tune was first published as the College Hornpipe in 1797 or 1798 by J. Dale of London. But there are references to it from before then. The dance and the tune, of course, make us think of those early days of sailor's life in the Royal Navy. And it's said that the jig was invented as a solo dance, as an exercise, because of the small space that the dance required and no need for a partner. So it was popular as an onboard activity for sailors. Of course, Popeye was a comic strip which debuted in 1929 before it became that great cartoon kids have been watching since 1930s in movie houses and on TV after school. And here's a little known fact. Before Popeye started getting his strength from eating the spinach, he actually got his powers by rubbing the head of Bernice the Wiffle Hen, also referred to as an African escape hen or just the Wiffle Bird. So in our maritime way of life, let's not forget that great American sailor, Popeye. Doot, doot. And yes, we do have a great episode today, but unfortunately, Popeye will not be joining us. Instead, we've got Justin Poe of Pure Fishing, and Justin is probably probably knows more about fishing rods than just about any other person on the planet. And if you don't believe me, just check out his job title at Pure Fishing. 
Director of Fishing Rods. So we'll be talking rods with Justin in just a bit. I will also be providing my thoughts today about Walcott bourbon during the bourbon break. And because we've got Justin Poe in the studio, I'll be counting down my top 10 favorite surf rods. And if I could, I'd ask Popeye to tell us about his favorite fishing rods, because there are plenty of scenes in which Popeye is seen fishing, including in episodes like Ration for the Duration from 1943, Popeye and the Pest from 1978, and so many more. Plus, there's a kid's book called Popeye Goes Fishing from 1983. And sometime back in the 1930s, Rapala used Popeye in a Let's Go Fishing campaign that featured Popeye, Wimpy, and Sweepy, all holding fishing rods with a big fish and another with Popeye carrying a fishing rod and a mermaid as an angry-looking olive oil glares at Popeye. So clearly Popeye knows a thing or two about fishing rods, and with any luck and insight, you'll get a few fishing rod pro tips on today's Rodcast. As always, be sure to subscribe to the Rodcast by clicking that subscribe button on whatever platform you're using to access the Rodcast. And please let everyone you know, know about the Rodcast, except Bluto, because he's just going to try to steal our women. Welcome to the Rodcast. Let's get casting. All right, we have got a great conversation in the making today because we have got Justin Poe of Pure Fishing in the Inventive Fishing Inshore Offshore Digital Studio today. Now, Justin has one of the coolest job titles I've ever heard. He is the Director of Rods at Pure Fishing. And given that Pure Fishing is home to Abu Garcia, Berkeley, Fenwick, Grays, Hardy, Mitchell, Penn, Fluger, Shakespeare, and Ugly Stick, he is literally the director of some of the most iconic fishing rods available anywhere in the world. And if that's not enough, before joining the Pure Fishing team, he was formerly global brand manager at Gene Loomis and senior product manager of rods at Shimano. Now, I've heard him referred to as the fishing rod guru and the rod design guru, and I've been told by several friends in the industry that Justin really may be the guy who knows more about fishing rods than anyone in the world. So as you might have guessed, we'll be talking about fishing rods today with Justin Poe. Justin, thanks so much for being on the Rodcast. <laughs> Happy to be here. Happy to be here. The Rodcast. That's a good one. All right. So let's start off a little background and get some of the Justin Poe origin story. Some of the media out there says that you started fishing when you were about four and that your dad and your uncle were your big fishing mentors. Tell us about the Justin Poe fishing origins. Yeah, that, that's right. I'm surprised there's history on me out there, but that's that's pretty much right. You know, it started off, my uncle was a uh, commercial fisherman and uh, he owned charter boats in the East Cape of Baja. And my dad was a crazy, avid saltwater inshore and offshore guy. And uh, we just so happened to, I just so happened to grow up about, uh, it was about 400 yards downhill to Lake Mission Viejo. So I cut my teeth at the lake when I couldn't get enough salt water or I couldn't get a ride. And, um, it just, it's just something I always did. And, uh, I, I wouldn't say that I had a really good technical skill at first. I had some really good mentors. Um, you know, my, my uncle told me that, you know, first it was, uh, it was the carrot of being potty trained before I could go off offshore with him. He wasn't going to, you know, have me wearing a diaper. So it's kind of a fun part there. But uh, 
And then uh, I had to learn how to cast a conventional. Uh, I wasn't allowed to have a spinning reel until I could learn how to cast a, a conventional. And a pen squitter was uh, my birthday present when I was four years old. And uh, I learned how to cast it in the backyard with a closed pin. And I destroyed a whole bunch of monofilament line uh, over the course of the following four or five months uh, before the summertime. And uh, I was able to go on my first albacore trip at five years old and catch a couple. So I was absolutely hooked uh, catching tuna with my uncle at five years old. You know, uh, he hooked and handed me plenty, but I, I still I still went through and killed some bait trying uh, in the bow for sure. <laughs> what a great story. I, I have to tell you, my first was uh, pen nine. I had to learn how to cast a pen, uh, pen number nine before I could go, go to spinning. So uh, yeah, there you go. So there you go. Sticking with some of this origin story stuff, I read that you actually got started in your family's pet store business and then became a telemarketer in the fishing tackle industry. Can you tell us a bit about that transition and how those early days of telemarketing positioned you to become a rod guru? Yeah, you know, uh, my, my, my fishing just never really stopped. And I, I, I made friends with a lot, of the, a lot of the boat captains and things like that. And I, I did work at my family's pet store which really taught me good, you know, work ethic, something that eats and goes to the bathroom 24 hours a day, every day, kind of, there's, there's no days off. So it kind of teaches you that you got to be there all the time and, and attention to detail is key, but my fishing never really stopped. And I was able to do all kinds of cool things. I worked on boats for little stints and things like that. So I got to be really close to it. And then a, a couple of my friends, one in particular, who's now the, um, the, the manager for the tackle uh, area at AFCO Fishing, Robbie Gant. Um, I went fishing with him on an afternoon while I was working at the pet store. And uh, he, he said, hey, I got a promotion. Uh, if, if I have to find my job replacement before I'm able to take my promotion. And I thought that was kind of a, a tough thing to have to do for a 19-year-old kid to do. But I was like, hey, well, he goes, do you know anyone? And I was like, I put my hand up, you know, in the boat. And I was like, maybe me. So yeah, the, 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 the telemarketing deal was interesting for sure. I was handed a book with about 25 pieces of paper in it, all handwritten computers were a thing, but like literally just for like some tracking and things like that and writing down phone numbers back then. And um, my job was growing the book and I called all the accounts that uh, the, so I call them the real reps, right? The independent reps that got in their cars and drove from account to account and had these glamorous things that they did, right? <laughs> That's at least how I viewed it. They, they went from account to account. Well, I called all the accounts they couldn't get to or that it didn't make good business sense to drive to because they weren't big enough, but they were still important enough for us to service. And I serviced them on the phone and asked them how they were doing, what they had going on. And, um, you know, I had some really good success. I, I, I grew that, you know, 20 pieces of paper to several folders full of, you know, account listings. And I really got to know those dealers and, and cut my teeth there. And uh, they called me on my BS when I needed it. And uh, I told them what I, I used things for in my fishing. So it really kind of always came back to my fishing and being under that, you know, they gave me a interesting title as a telemarketer. I was the top shelf specialist. So I, I sold 
the dealer direct product, which was the high-end product over the phone. Uh, and it was Shimano product in those days. And so I had to have real good technical knowledge and be able to repair reels and things like that. But um, uh, a couple, a few years later is when it kind of developed into, you know, building fishing rods. I was invited to go fishing with the vice president of Shimano and uh, Dave Pfeiffer. And I, I didn't, you know, I was really young. I was 21, I think, 20, 21. And um, I was really dumb. And I didn't understand who he was or who I was talking to. And, you know, but I was just being me on a boat. I was, we were catching them. And I think there was four of us on the boat. A couple of guys fell asleep and it was a boat ride for them. And, you know, him and I were driving the boat and I cut all the fish on the way home. And, you know, he was appreciative of that, that he didn't have to do that. And then uh, we were standing at the console and he asked me why we didn't sell more of, you know, rods. And I, I told him straight up that the actions weren't very good. And uh, I, I kind of offended him. And he looked at me and goes, well, I, I made those actions. And I said, oh, well, sorry, I'm just telling you the truth. And, and he said, uh, you know, do you think you can help us? And I said, you, you bet. It would, it would serve me as well because I'd be able to sell something that had a better action. And um, it was kind of a, a really good match there. And then, um, you know, we did it. Terramar was born, the original Shimano inshore series, the TC4 inshore series, and um, sold a lot of them. And they still sell a lot of them today. And um, about six months after the launch, he you know, invited me to lunch and they offered me a position doing it for real. That's excellent. I do have to say you were talking about that binder and those notes. There is sort of a lore around the industry that that binder that you collected, all of that wealth of information has sort of a, a an industry feel like Indiana Jones's dad's grail diary that, that that's where all the secret information is. Exactly. Yeah. It was uh, it was a wealth of knowledge. I, I, I would go back to it almost like uh, captain's log. You know, I would remember what they said and when things changed, I would go back to what it was. And when we fixed problems that they viewed as concerns, I would go back to them and say, Hey, you know, this is new. It's, it's what you were talking about and try to give them some ownership in it. So we, we listened and with, with raw design, it's always uh, for me been a, a solution to a problem. You know uh, I've always worked pretty closely with a, a core of dealers, probably 45 or 50 across the country uh, within different regions. And what they need is what they need. No one really wants to buy the Justin rod. Um, they, they want to buy the rod that is the solution to the problem that they have because they're fishing a certain way or they're fishing a certain bait or they're fishing a certain depth or they're fishing a certain action because, you know, fish jump off with too fast of an action. Fish, you know, don't get the hooks if it's too fast of an action. You know, hooks bury in wood if it's too fast of an action or likewise can't get the fish out if it's too moderate of an action. So, you know, solutions to the problem is kind of really the basis of everything. If not, there's really no reason for being. You can only skin a cat so many ways where people are going to care. It has to actually make them a better, it actually has to provide them a better experience or it doesn't matter. Excellent. All right. So before we get into Rod specifically, I want one, one other sort of an intro question here. I know you're active with the nonprofit organization Grayfish Tag. Um, which is an international fish tagging program that promotes the sustainability of marine game fish and increasing public resource awareness. Tell us a little bit about your involvement with Grays. 
it's just such a great, um, it's just such a great place and a great resource. It's, um, I'm on the, I'm on the advisory board with Gray's and we spend a lot of time like dissecting fisheries, right? So what's the best way? What's the information? My favorite thing about Gray Fish Tag is that all the information is free. It's all out there. Anyone can go see it at any time. I have uh, multiple fish that I have named and that have been tracked and recaptured and, um, you know, that were released and released unharmed or maybe a little harmed and came back, you know, but uh, that, that it, it's just such a great fishery. There's fisheries uh, thing. They, they, they just do such a good job with the different regions. Uh, I've been with them in Costa Rica. I've been with them in Cabo. Um, I have yet to do the striped bass thing in the Northeast. Um, it's just never worked out for my timing, but uh, man, they, they do some awesome things. They go to some awesome places. And uh, anyone can be part of the expeditions and go uh, experience what they experience. And it's all just first class camaraderie like the fishing tackle industry is. And for me, it's also really, really good networking. It became part of what I do because of my network. But if you don't have a good network, you could grow your network by being part of it. So it's, um, it's a great thing run by great people, like-minded people. And uh, if you haven't met Bill Davalier, um, he's an incredible person, an incredible fisherman. He's really a good friend of mine. Excellent. I always like to hear when leaders inside of the industry are doing these kinds of research, tagging, anything to uh, promote sustainability uh, in addition to their uh, industry jobs. So really, really glad to hear that about Gray's. All right, so let's get into the rods. And I really want to pick your brain about rods in general but also about some of the specific rods in the pure fishing catalog, particularly those that you've had a hand in designing. I want to start off kind of generically and get you to talk about a few of the key components of fishing rods, mostly as kind of a primer for new anglers, but also to get your expertise as to how all anglers should be thinking about these components. And I suppose the place to start then is with the blank, since so much of the rod's construction is dependent on the blank. What should we as consumers understand the most about rod blanks when we're selecting rods? Uh, consumers and fishermen should understand what their needs are first, right? So if they, if being who you are is really important um, and knowing who you are. If you're the kind of person that cuts your sandwich with a bait knife like me and you need a super durable, hardcore tool, like a, a framer needs a hammer or, you know, like a machinist needs a lathe, um, then you want to get something that's super durable. Now, if you are, you know, very precise and very, you know, conscientious of taking care of your gear, you can use a little bit higher, higher spec, higher modulus gear um, and feel a little bit more. But there's, there's power fishermen. And then there is, then there is, um, you know, finesse fishermen. So, Putting yourself in a bucket first of what you prefer is probably the most important and then going after that. So um, it, it's, it's kind of a tough thing to do with reading off of the blank or reading off of the website or reading off of a, a hang tag on a rod to know what rod is, is good for you. It's probably going to be better off if you actually feel it, right? If you, 
if you feel it in the store with line, line through the guides makes a huge difference uh, until you really become uh, good at feeling the fishing rod. Um, a lot of, I see a lot of people shaking rods at a trade show and I, I always wonder, and oftentimes I ask them because I, I'm just that guy, I ask the weird question like, what are you feeling for? You know, because I wonder if they're trying to feel the same thing I'm feeling. When I shake a rod, I'm feeling for internal graphite flags, or I'm feeling for shutoff points, or I'm feeling for power, or I'm feeling for action, I'm feeling for balance. You know, I wonder if they're feeling the same. I, I doubt they are. Uh, maybe some of it, but not all of it. Uh, and um, I think just kind of, yeah, so I think figuring out who you are and what you need the rod for is number one. And then number two, I, I think people get way too caught up in construction type. Um, the actual material the rod is made out of because number one, there is no graphite police. Um, we always actually make it out of what we say we make it out of, but there is no weights and measures in fishing rods. No one's coming to see that that's what it's actually made out of. So you can make a really awesome rod out of 24 ton graphite and you can make a really not so good rod with a little strip of 24 ton graphite and they both say that they're made out of 24 ton graphite. So unfortunately there's, there's a little bit of funny business, a little bit of shenanigans going on in the fishing tackle world. I'm not going to call out anyone in specific, you know, but uh, that there is, I, I would say, feel it, uh, put a reel on it or the reel that you're going to use on it. And uh, feel, you know, fishing is all for me is all about feel. So um, if, if you can feel it, it'll make you better. You know, it's just truth. Great answer. I was just talking with a buddy the other day about how every guy who goes into a tackle shop picks up the rod and shakes it. And uh, we're convinced that 90% of that rod shaking is so that the other guy with you thinks you know what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. 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 You can, you can feel there's certain things you can feel in a rod when you shake it. Now it, it, it just depends on who's shaking it and why you're shaking it, but you can feel the graphite composition in a rod or the glass composition in a rod based on shutoff, based on the recovery rate of the material, higher grade material, higher modulus, higher tonnage material recovers quicker, meaning it goes back to straight uh, quicker with less wobble and less uh, variable vibration, you know, torsional vibration. Um, so when a, when a rod, when you, when you shake a rod and you hit it on your elbow, you know, and you shake it in the store, if it goes right back to straight, it, it's usually pretty, pretty high modulus material. You can feel crispness in, in a rod. And it's funny, you can, you can line up, you know, you can line up seven or eight rods that all say they're made out of the same material and they all feel different because fishing rods are such a personal thing. Uh, they take on the, they take on the designers uh, kind of traits and characteristics. They take on the factory uh, traits and characteristics. Um, there isn't much variation from factory to factory or from brand to brand, but they all feel different because there's no standard. Gotcha. Good to know. All right. So similar question about guides, because there's so many different kinds of guides out there. What should we be looking for when we pick up a, a rod off the rack in a tackle store with the guides? Uh, guides, um, guides is an interesting thing. And again, it's kind of goes back to your need, um, and what you're doing with it. Um, if, if you're saltwater inshore fishing, I think that everyone, you know, I, I think the brands get a little bit too much attention for years and years. Fuji was the only way. 
Um, and if it had Fuji, it was a great rod, right? Um, well, the truth is you can get a $2 blank with Fuji, you know, Hardloy stainless steel guides, and you can get a $20 blank with Fuji Hardloy stainless steel guides. And, you know, which one is better? Uh, it depends who you are and what you're doing with it. Uh, for inshore and offshore fishing, I think that the number one thing that people should look for beyond the brand is uh, construction materials, titanium, stainless steel are important for corrosion resistance. And then they want something with a deep press ring. So the ring should be kind of buried. If, it, if it's an insert type guide, uh, like a Fuji or a Sea Guide or something like that, or a V-Mark or something like that, they want something that's, that's kind of buried, meaning shrouded in the frame. If that, that will keep them from having that old, you know, guide insert pop-out problem uh, that happens so much when we, you know, we, we beat up our rods, you know, it's just, that's just kind of the nature of the beast. You hit something, um, a knot hits it, uh, expansion, contraction, heat and cold, you know, are part of it. So that happens a whole lot less if you get a deep press ring in the guide frame. So I would stick with stainless steel or titanium, and I would look for something that's deep pressed in. I don't really think the material of the ring itself matters as much anymore. Almost all of the rings that are used today hold up to all the super lines or monofilaments or fluorocarbons that we're using. So it's not really uh, an issue for grooving like it might have used to have been. You know, it used to be that, you know, the Pac Bay XBG was the only one that kind of held up to silty conditions with monofilament. And it was a 316 stainless steel welded ring you know uh, everything else kind of grooved but you know that it's a different day it's a different age and um uh, there it's a great time in fishing because everything is so good uh which is great there's so many good choices so i think deep press for saltwater offshore and inshore is probably the number one key and then you know also depending on your situation tangle free so a forward sloping strut guide uh, for spinning applications and crosswinds keeps you from wrapping a uh, limp line around the stripper guide and tangle free tips is also important. And that's just where the uh, guide struts or the tip struts uh, come back into that tube that's glued or wrapped onto the tip. Uh, past that, I think almost everything out there today is good. So what about real seats? It seems to me that over the years, aside from broken guides, that real seats are one of the most vulnerable parts of a rod's construction. So what, what should we know about real seats? I would say real seats um, is no longer really an issue. I would say the number one thing about real seats is breaking free from uh, the blank itself, not really the real seat itself. Uh, there isn't a lot of um, real seat failure anymore. Um, there's a lot of good real seats out there. We make some uh, that, they're branded with our own brands um, just because it's easier for us to get exactly what we want if we build it. Um, but not everyone has pure fishing's resources. So um, if you're getting a rod with, you know, Fuji, Sea Guide, uh, or uh, a good quality self-branded, uh, you, you can kind of tell fit and finish is the key. I would say turn the screws on the, on the, um, on the real seat and feel that the, you know, put some pressure on it with your thumbs or put some pressure on it with, uh, with a reel in the foot and see if the threads gall, if the threads bind. Um, 
it, it's more of a problem, I would say, on aluminum reel seats than it is on graphite reel seats. Um, and, and just check to see what that feels like. Check that it's really heavy duty. Um, even some of the graphite is the graphite reel seats is reinforced with like aluminum overhoods. So that's probably pretty important on anything over 25 pound line. Uh, and um, yeah, just go from there. Just make sure it's something comfortable. A lot of a lot of places that a lot of the real seat makers fall short is that you know there's such a there's such a problem between the transition right between the hood the nut and where the you know where your hands come into play there's big ridges and valleys and things like that and depending on how you hold the rod spin or cast will make it either very very comfortable or uncomfortable over time some of the things that may not look like they're going to, you know, they might look classic in a sense, but man, they really can enhance your day on the water. If you spend all day with a rod in your hand, uh, you're going to want every amount of ergonomics and good feel that you can get out of a real seat. So some of the finishes they put on them these days are pretty nice. Some of that soft touch and things like that. Uh, on a hot day, it's cooler. On a cold day, it's warmer. You know, there, there's a lot of really cool um finishes and things like that on real seats so it's it's uh it's it's really it's really a fun time in fishing rods a lot of the components are really 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 good there's not any there's not really anybody using any you know bad ones these days it used to be oh look out for this you don't want that you know look out for this you might not want that but um you know it's it's uh it's it's not that time right now so we're we're in a good place so let's talk about that good place and let's talk about Abu Garcia's new Xenon rods, which you had a hand in designing and which were introduced last year at ICAST and won best of category for new freshwater rods in the new product showcase. Xenon rods come in both casting and spinning. And I've heard you say that the Xenon rods are the most sensitive rods you've ever seen. Tell us about the Xenons, about the idea behind them, about the technology behind them, and about those future features that make it such a sensitive rod. Well, the, the, the Xenon is an incredible series of rods. It's a, it's a small, compact series uh, based around finesse fishing uh, where, where sensitivity is key. Originally, we set off to make a very, very, you know, the lightest rod we could make to pair with uh, the Xenon spinning reels that came out. Um, the Xenon spinning reels, you know, magnesium body, they transfer a lot of sensitivity through the through the body and the stem and the frame, uh, which was really cool to be able to play into that. So the reel with the rod together is an incredible fishing tool. Not that it's not with another reel, but man, it's unbelievable when you fish the two together. Everything that we did on the Xenon really was centered around that weight, balance, and sensitivity. Um, I would say sensitivity and weight being number one and number two. But when we test it here at Pure Fishing, you know, in the lab at Spirit Lake, we have a lot of tests that we do that a lot of other manufacturers don't do. Um, just with our science base, we, we tested the sensitivity transfer to the winding check and we tested the sensitivity transfer into your hand. Um, we, I, I can't divulge exactly how we do it, but we tested everyone kind of equally, uh, all of our competitors equally and heads and tails above anything that we had ever made and everything that we tested, there's more sensitivity transfer. And it really comes from proper guide placement when you add a guide or you add a wrap. So when you add a guide, it's one thing, right? It, it's, it's adding a guide. So 
It can create more friction if you're casting and be a problem, or it can create isolation between the rod and the, the line. So it, it can help you or it can hurt you. You don't want too many guides. A lot of people think if you just add guides, it's better. Well, it's not because it's creating more drag. It's like it's like fishing. You know, it's, if it's like it's like slow pitch jigging with fifty pound line versus twenty pound line, you, you have to have you have a lot more scope in the water if you're creating more drag with that heavier line. The same is true about casting. But if you're hitting the blank, you need to add a guide because that's going to uh, make more friction than the guide itself. But every time you add a guide, you add at least a wrap. If it's a single foot guide, if it's a double foot guide, you add two wraps. The wraps themselves actually weigh almost as much as the guide itself. So everything you add to a fishing rod blank makes the blank feel less alive, less cool, and it transfers less sensitivity. So it's pretty much the perfect storm of optimization of guide train. Real seat doesn't have any filler. Um, it's carbon filled. It's carbon-filled nylon, so it transfers more sensitivity. It, it, it's, it's, a, it, it's just got lightning in it, right? It, it feels so much different than a lot of rods in your hand because it transfers everything back. We were really careful not to add some of those. You see on a lot of rods today, there's special treatments where, you know, around where the blank comes into the foregrip, there's like a little metal ring. Well, that dampens sensitivity. You know, every, everything you add kind of, creates a, you know, less sensitivity, less transfer. So it's as minimalistic as it can be and still be comfortable out of the highest material, highest modulus material we've ever made into a fishing rod. Um, but we used uh, Powerlux resin to enhance the breakage of it. So it's just as strong as we've ever made. It's just that much better for sensitivity and for lightweight. It's just it's an, it's an epic, epic rod. And we're actually working on uh, additions to it. You know, there's, there's more things that, that Xenon can be, and there's more things that uh, anglers want it to be. So we're doing those things right now. Excellent. I saw it at ICAST last year and was completely impressed with it. So clearly we can't cover all the rods in the pure fishing catalog but i do want to ask about one more abu garcia rod and that's the veritas tournament spinning rod and if i'm remembering correctly this is a rod that earned a reputation as an incredibly light rod that is also incredibly strong how does a rod like this account for its strength a lot of times um rods when you when you work on strength with a fishing rod there's there's certain things that you have to give up right? Uh, strength and it used to be that strength and weight kind of were at opposite ends of the spectrum. You had to add either glass material or lesser, lesser, you know, modulus material to get that strength because, you know, higher modulus material is stiffer, uh, which in a lot of cases, the misnomer these days still is the highest, the higher modulus you go, the more fragile the rod is well a lot of that changes with the resin and we have a pr proprietary resin here uh called power lux and power lux um let's see what the easiest way to explain it is so the, the resin itself creates its own uh, I'll, I'll spare you the well actually i will let's go let's go a little science here um, so the resin itself has suspended nanoparticles in it. It 
actually forms a covalent chain of reinforcement in the resin itself. If you look at like catalyzed resin from, you know, leftover boat work and it's in the, you know, it's in the bottom of the pail or it's in like a little, you know, bucket or whatever, it's completely clear. There's nothing to it. In a lot of cases uh, in epoxy, it's a little bit flexible. Um, in some cases, it's once it's completely hardened, it's really brittle and it breaks like glass. So it doesn't have much strength to it. It's really easy to fracture. What this resin does is, I'll go back to another, a different analogy now. Like if you're pouring a driveway, a concrete driveway, and you're adding stone and rebar to it, this resin creates its own rebar, right? So you have that reinforcement in the resin itself. So the resin has modulus and the material has modulus. The resin has some, has some additional help from flexion and deflection where you can create more strength with this. Uh, the number one thing that I would say that it actually helps in is uh, impact resistance. It's almost like, uh, you know, you ever got a rock in your windshield where they have that, you know, you get that rock hit and then it kind of starts to spider from there. This resin is almost like having the stuff that they fix that with in the windshield to begin with. It hits it, but it stops there right? Because it can't go through the nanoparticles into the rest of the rod. So it, it just, and there's a couple ways to do that, right? You can, you can take a, an inshore eight to 17, you know, seven foot, eight to 17 rod that, you know, naturally we would want to break at 20 pounds and, you know, or 22 pounds pulling power. And you can just use that resin and that would get you to 25 or 26 pounds, which is a, a big, increase, right? But a lot of times what we're able to do is we're able to find a happy medium where we don't necessarily want it to break any heavier. Uh, we might want it to break one or two pounds heavier, and then we'll remove that much more material that we would have had to have. So in the result is we can make a rod that's a little bit stronger and quite a bit lighter, or we can make, or we can decide to make a rod that's the same weight and just make it brutally, brutally strong. So there's a choice to make, and we often make that choice. In this tournament series, uh, tournament anglers are notoriously tough on their tackle. So we don't, we didn't decide to make it super crazy light, even though it's very light. We, we didn't decide to, we just chose not to have all that savings and weight, and we made it brutally strong and only a little bit lighter. Excellent. Uh, that's really interesting. I appreciate you explaining it like that. All right. All right. So from my perspective, there's really no way to talk about pure fishing and rods without bringing pen into the picture. I mean, really pen rods and reels are some of the most iconic fishing rods out there. I'm really interested in hearing about the new pen carnage series, which includes so many kinds of rods from surf rods to jig spinning rods to slow pitch conventional rods and so on. Tell us about the Carnage series and what it is about all of these different models of rods that make them part of a single series of rods. Carnage is just such an iconic series for us. And the, the new Carnage 3 is just such an epic collection. It's, you know, Carnage is one of those things that does have the brand strength and the brand love uh, globally to be everything for everyone saltwater. You know, it, it has it. It, it has the appeal. It matches with the reels that we sell that we distribute as well. So 
if you're fishing anything from an international to a battle, you know, car- there's something in there in carnage for you, you know, with pen, uh, pen is really known for durability. Uh, we have a really incredible brand loyalty. The pen stuff just works. That's what our consumers tell us. It just works. It just keeps running. And these carnage are no different. So the way we diversify the different actions is, is by region. You know, how it, it's different. You know, there's there's a guy, you know, in Palm Beach that's going to go across to the Bahamas and troll for yellowfin is going to use a 50, right? And the guy in the, north, the Northeast that's chunking big eyes in the canyon is going to use a 50. The guy in uh, California fishing bluefin tuna on glow jigs in the dark in three to 500 feet of water catching fish from 50 to 200 pounds is using a 50. Uh, I, you know, I could go on and on, but all three of those rods are different things, right? You get a 50 pound trolling rod, you get an 80 pound chunking rod and you get a 130 pound, you know, rail rod, all using a 50, all in different locations. So in Carnage, we're building by application, by region. And that's why it's so diverse. You know, there's there's a lot of things that we do. You know, we have Carnage West Coast, Carnage Boat, Carnage Slope Hitch, Carnage Jig. You know, all the different things that you're going to be using a Carnage for, you know, it, it kind of all goes back to the real. If you're using an international, if you're using a torque, if you're using a fathom of battle, uh, some of our newer spinning reels, we kind of have rod designs that are already in those for the reels that haven't even come out yet. Um, it'll it'll all kind of come back around. So Carnage is our flagship saltwater pen rod series, and we want it to be the deepest uh, of all. It covers the most applications of any, and uh, it's very technique and region specific. So if you're on the coast in this country and you are saltwater fishing, Carnage has as you covered. Excellent. Yeah. I mean, the whole, that whole line is just phenomenal. Um, I will tell you, I'm also fascinated by the Battalion 2 Surf Ulua and the Carnage 3 Ulua. Tell me a little bit about Ulua rods. Ulua rods are an interesting, interesting thing. You know, it's a Hawaiian, it's a Hawaiian thing for sure. Um, there's a couple other places that they do it, but they do it a little different way. Only in Hawaii is it really done this way. Um, Australia, New Zealand, United Arab Emirates, and Dubai, they fish uh, GTs, uh, which is an alua, and they fish them on stick baits on, you know, heavy spinning tackle, and they're, they're casting the fish over reefs and, reefs and wrecks. Uh, in Hawaii, they do it very, very differently. It's a bait fishery, and um, they are casting from cliffs uh, as far as they can with these very long, you know, unruly rods, but they're tackling, you know, 20 to 50, 60 pound fish. They're, they have to be absolutely, you know, tough as nails. The, the butt section of these rods is made of, you know, stainless steel because they wedge them between rocks. Um, it, but they're, they're unbelievable. 13 feet long, uh, two pieces. Uh, we have three different Three different line classes across a couple different series, you know, from 40 pound to 100 pound. So they're pulling really, really hard. They're strapped to a cliff with their buddies, and it's it's a really awesome recreational recreational and tournament species uh, for the the people of Hawaii. It's it's their it's probably their number one 
you know, um, access wise game fish, you know, where a lot of the stuff in Hawaii, it's, you know, big boats offshore, big blue marlin, fad fishing, things like that. Access is kind of tough. Um, if you can drive to a cliff and catch some bait on a bait catcher and drop it out, you can, you can catch one of these GTs or one of these Alua's and, uh, it's, it's an incredible, incredible fishery. Yeah. I've been fortunate to have seen that and, uh, really think those rods are really kind of cool. So like Penn, Shakespeare is an iconic rod manufacturer that offers fly rods, freshwater rods, and saltwater rods. And I know that Shakespeare has released a new fly rod called the Cedar Canyon St uh, Stream Fly Rod, which can be used either as a freshwater or saltwater rod. Tell us about the Cedar Canyon rod. So the Cedar Canyon, it, it kind of, uh, it's, it's really a great general purpose fly rod. You know, the, the position of Shakespeare is that fishing is fun, fishing is community, and, you know, we're trying to, you know, people that just want to get out and enjoy the outdoors, they might not want a lot of tech and spec, they just want something that works, that's easy, that they can buy. The Cedar Canyon, uh, it covers so many different things because it needs to, right? It, it can do the light duty saltwater stuff, it can do the light, it can do the freshwater stuff. It, it's a great overall, uh, fly rod I, I hesitate to say starter fly rod because it's better than that um but it's um it's a great entry-level fly rod until the you know a new fly angler or a fly angler that's you know flying in to try it for the first time it's something that they 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 may never outgrow but they can go experience what fly fishing has to offer which fly fishing is just such a fun thing to do absolutely you know, as I think about all the rods housed within the pure fishing umbrella, it seems to me that of all the pure fishing rod companies, it's Ugly Stick that has the broadest range of types of rods. Tell us a bit about Ugly Stick and the kinds of rods that really stand out under this brand. Ugly Stick is um, Ugly Stick is its own thing. You know, Ugly Stick has its own pop culture. Right, Ugly Stick has bridged through fishing into so many different things. You know, I think back to way, way before my time here with, you know, the ads of Hulk Hogan in the ring with the ugly stick and, you know, the things that Matt Robertson's doing with ugly stick, ugly stick is really, you know, it's still ugly stick, which is unbelievable to me. And at the same time, ugly stick has evolved to something completely different. You know, that whole out process that, everyone knows and uh those rods and how they're made is is unbelievable and makes an incredibly durable rod that is incredibly performance driven they're just brutally durable they just stand up and they hold out and then we have another complete series in the last couple of years called ugly stick carbon it's basically the, a similar very similar construction made of 24 ton carbon so not only is it super durable as a brand but it, now it's also performance driven. We literally have pros on the tour fishing, you know, those carbon rods. And those carbon rods are 50% stronger than a standard, you know, cut and roll graphite rod. They're made of 100% graphite. They're 50% stronger than that, but they're 30 to 40% lighter than the traditional glass ugly stick. So we have at one end of the spectrum, we have everyone's, you know, everyone's the, the, the known most durable rod in the industry for the longest time. And at the other side, we have rods being used by people on the Bassmaster circuit, 
and uh, all within the same umbrella of brands. And it doesn't make one better to another. It's just such a, it's a, such an incredible demographic of material of people that use Ugly Stick. And everyone has love for Ugly Stick around here and all the people that I talk to at all the shows and things like that. You know, people, I, I was talking to, uh, who was I talking to the other day? I was talking to, um, I was talking to some guys down in Florida, some, some charter guys, and they still, they're still using ugly sticks. I mean, to this day, they're using, it's amazing to me that, that ugly stick just stand the test of time. And I, I'm not shocked, but at the same time, every once in a while, it's just like, wow, it's just the reach of ugly stick is so amazing. It really is a phenomenal brand. It is, it is iconic right up there with the other pure fishing brands. You know, one of the things I'm really curious about, and in fact, I've been wanting to write an article about this for a while now, and that's travel rods. I know Fenwick used to have a solid offering in travel rods and that both Shakespeare and Ugly Stick also have travel rods. So tell us what to look for when selecting a travel rod. Oh, what to look for with, when selecting a travel rod. Um, you're right. We have Fenwick, we have Fenwick travel rods. We have pen travel rods. Uh, we have ugly stick travel rods. Uh, me personally, uh, I, it, I guess it really just depends on where you're going and what you're fishing with. A lot of people, a travel rod is something they put behind the seat of their truck. But if you're, you know, if you're on an airplane and you're going to Belize, you know, that might be a different travel rod. So we have travel rods in all assortments that you'd like. Uh, I, I think, I think the one thing that you look for in a travel rod is just something that fits your need. Uh, if it's a saltwater travel rod, you want to make sure it has the same componentry that you would want your regular saltwater rod to have. Um, in a couple places, the, the actual case that it comes in is pretty important too. You want it to be durable, small enough to be carried on on the airplane so you don't have to pay the crazy air, airline uh, baggage fees for your long rods or anything longer than like 36 inches. And uh, in a lot of cases, um, you know, most of the cases, they're three to four piece. And um, there's been so much advancement in uh, the actual ferreling of those rods. It used to be as soon as you put those ferrules kind of ruin the action. That's not the case anymore. Uh, these rods are fantastic rods, no slouch. And a lot of times when we go to shows and we have them all put together, people walk up and shake them like we were talking about earlier, and they can't tell it's a travel rod until you tell them it's a travel rod. Um, which is just a testament to what those actions are like. So for a travel rod, for me, I think it's just something, you know, purposeful. You know, if, if you're going to Belize and you're going to go permit bone fishing, you know, small tarpon, juvie tarpon in the back bays, you know, we have a pen rod and a Fenwick, you know, travel rod for that in the inshore series and the elite inshore. Um, if you're, you know, if you're going to the mountains, things like that, we, we have, uh, you know, we have light, medium light eagle travel rods. Uh, that'd be perfect for that. So I, I think it's just, I think it's just pick the one for your purpose uh, and go within the brand for your purpose. In in Fenwick, you're going to have freshwater and you're going to have the inshore and in Penn, you're going to have the inshore only uh, in the travel rods. So it's, it's pretty fun that way. Glad to hear you say what you're saying about the feraling, because I think, uh, at least three or four of the travel rods I've owned, the feral is always the the weak spot. It's always where the break happens. Yeah, it can be. I, I would say, um, in you know, head to a surfboard shop or something like that, or a local um, auto auto shop or something like that, and get you know a good investment would be a little a little can of or a little tub of like paraffin wax. 
uh, you put that stuff together and smash it together and travel with it. I, I'd say most people break their own travel rods, either putting them together or taking them apart. So if you can avoid that, you're going to avoid 80% of the pain. Yeah, yeah I, that sounds great advice. So I realize that fly rods are a different kind of conversation, but given the heritage and reputation of the company, I got to ask about Hardy fly rods. And I have to say that I drool over the Hardy Zane Pro Rod, particularly when matched with that Hardy Zane carbon reel. Can you tell us just a little bit about Hardy? Yeah, you know, uh, I don't really handle the fly stuff here. That's another guy, but uh, the, Hardy, the Hardy stuff is just unbelievable. That Zane Pro and that stuff, you know, just just the purpose of it and how it's, you know, the guides, it's, it's a gunnel, it's a gunnel rod, right? So that stuff is just amazing how that stuff has to survive the entire, the entire year in a, in a, in a guides gunnel and uh, going back and forth on the launch ramps and the different tight spaces that they put them. And uh, there's a lot to be said about the technology of those blanks. Um, that Centrix material it's just an incredible reinforcing resin that gives you that impact and gives you that strength, uh, but it doesn't add all the weight that you would necessarily have to add to get the rigidity and the strength in, in a fly rod. The balance is, is unbelievable. And uh, I don't think there's anything better uh, for that market down there. And our sales and success have kind of, have kind of showed that, that, that market um, in Southern, Southern Florida into you know, Central America, Caribbean, where they, where they're fishing those rods. Uh, there, there is no more popular rod these days than that, than that pro, that Zane pro. Yeah, they are beautiful and boy, are they just, they cast so phenomenally well. So we've talked a lot about uh, different models of rods in the pure fishing catalog, but there are literally hundreds of more rods I haven't mentioned. And all of the companies that make rods within the pure fishing products are turning out phenomenal product. So as we get into the wrap up here as director of rods, what's the one rod among the whole pure fishing rod catalog that you're really amped about right now? Uh, I would say the one that I'm the most amped up about right now, there, there's two, there's um, the ugly stick carbon inshore. It's just such an awesome rod and it's going to be so many things to so many people and it's at an entry level price. So, so I view, I view things in two zones, right? I, I view things like everyone, this is attainable for almost everybody, you know, 70 or $80 that is the intro rod. It's just the best blend of materials and construction, stainless steel Duraguides, maybe no guide issues. It's got, you know, that, that rubberized shrink tube butt section that you could utilize as a crowbar. And that front section is all, you know, corked in your hand. So it, it feels like what you want it to feel like. It's tough like an ugly stick. And it, 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 the applications cross from, you know, corpus all the way to the Carolinas for any type of inshore fishing. That one right now is really, really exciting to me. And then I would say number two is our current plans on what we have for Fenwick in the future. We have a lot of things planned for Fenwick in the future. And, um, there's some really, really, really exciting things. Uh, the current, the new Elite that's going to launch any day now, um, the new Elite Bass, it, it, it's got bass, inshore predator rods for muskie, walleye, trout, panfish. Um, it, it's an incredible series. I think there's 59 different actions, very purpose-built, technique-driven, 
um, different construction types depending on the application and fit and finish is just phenomenal on that elite series that I'm excited about. But uh, I'm excited about Fenwick as a whole. We have, we have such good plans for Fenwick and such uh, cool things coming. Fenwick has so much brand equity with our customers and consumers. Uh, Fenwick is just known for craftsmanship and to be an expert fishing rod. And uh, I would say we've kind of done it a disservice in the last four or five years. We haven't we haven't kept it true to its word a little bit, and we are changing all of that here really soon. Excellent. Well, I'll be keeping my eyes on Fenwick stuff then. All right. So, Justin, we've got a tradition here on the Fishing Professor Show of wrapping up our conversations with a standard question, which I'm going to ask you in just a second. But I'm going to add a bit of a rod-focused twist to the question today. So the question we usually wrap up with is, what's your grail fish? What's the one fish that sits atop your bucket list that's out there waiting for you? And the twist here is, I also want to know, what rod do you want to take that fish on and why? <laughs> okay. Um, geez. Uh, that's a tough one. Um, I would say... Wow, that's a tough one. I, I would like to catch a, I would like to catch a thirty pound or better Kubera snapper on a surface lure. And my rod of choice would be the Carnage nine foot thirty to fifty jig stick. Um, I'm more of a conventional guy than a spinning guy, and I think it's a little bit more of a challenge. And I want to I want to catch a thirty pounder better Kubera snapper on a stick bait or a popper. I've caught them on live bait, but I've never caught them on the artificial. And uh, I would love to. That sounds fantastic, Justin. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk with me today. I'm excited to see what new rods Pure Fishing Brands will have at ICAST this year. And I encourage everyone in the listening crew to check out the Pure Fishing catalog at purefishing.com to see all of the incredible rods the Pure, Pure Fishing brands have available. Justin, thanks so much for being on the Rodcast. You're welcome. Thank you very much. It was a good time. Oh, yeah, I am loving the sounds of them barking dogs today because it means we're going to talk about bourbon for a bit now. And yes, I love talking about fishing just as much as I love fishing. But once in a while, you got to take a break. And on the Fishing Professor Rodcast, we take a bourbon break. And today I want to talk about a bourbon that I just stumbled upon recently when my family gave me a bottle of it as a gift for some occasion or another. And I'm talking about a bottle of Walcott Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. And it turns out that the bottle had been recommended to my family by the folks over at Total Wine. And I must admit that I really like this bourbon. It is so smooth and light and just has a fantastic flavor. Now, part of the reason that I had not heard of Walcott prior to receiving the bottle is that Walcott is a private label made exclusively for Total Wine by Buffalo Trace, which means you're not going to find it in your favorite liquor store unless your favorite liquor store is Total Wine. Fortunately, though, if you don't have a Total Wine shop in your area, you can always order a bottle from the Total Wine web store. It's a relatively inexpensive bottle, listing at Total Wine for about 55 bucks for the big 1.75 liter bottle. 
Now, because it's a private label, though, there's not a lot of information about the verb about the bourbon available. We know that this is a 90 proof bourbon, but the age time is not disclosed anywhere. The label tells us that the bourbon is made in, quote, fine charred American oak, but it doesn't say for how long the bourbon ages in that oak. The mash bill is also not identified either on the bottle or the Total Wine webpage. However, the taste certainly gives away that this is a high rye mash bill. The nose is very light, almost subtle, but that doesn't signal a timid taste. In fact, just the opposite. The palate of the Walcott is robust. The high rye and corn give the palate a primary sweet flavor, very fruity and certainly enhanced by a caramel and vanilla dominant flavor. That fruitiness is best described as being in the range of dried apricots with a tinge of cherry. There's some spice here too, which makes evident the use of the charred oak um, and the presence of that alcohol as well. The finish lays claim to the spice of the oak with traces of cinnamon that holds the finish for a pleasant duration, wrapping up with a hint of leather, but also a reminder of that sweet corn and rye. Now, to be fair, this is not a complex bourbon, and it's its simplicity I, it's in its simplicity that I see why it's rapidly becoming a very popular bourbon. It's light, so it makes for easy sipping, and its sweet personality makes it a welcoming drink for bourbon fans of all taste. I'll be honest that when I received the bottle, I was skeptical of what was waiting in the bottle, but after my first taste, I haven't poured from any other bottle since opening it, and I have ordered two more bottles since the first was pretty much gone at this point. It is definitely a bourbon that I plan on keeping around. It's a fine, smooth, neat drink and a few rocks really bring out more of that sweetness so if you can get a bottle i really do recommend that you give walcott walcott kentucky straight bourbon whiskey a pour of course all of your bourbon snobs who are going to dismiss this as being too simple of a bourbon well that's your prerogative but of course you should feel free to email me your thoughts on the walcott or any other bourbon if you think there's a bourbon out there i should try for the bourbon break keep in mind that like the rest of the Fishing Professor show, the Bourbon Break is not sponsored or supported by anyone in the bourbon industry. So the thoughts in this, in fact, nobody in the bourbon industry even knows who the hell I am. So the thoughts in this show are strictly my own, not influenced by outside forces, nefarious or reputable. The distillers have not sent me samples, nor do they influence my reviews at all, though I am always open to sponsorship, bribery, and extortion. The bourbons I reviewed are, review are purchased out of pocket, or in the case of this week's Walcott, given to me by my family, and my reviews are based on the keen sense of bourbon know-how I have developed over many years in many of this country's finest watering holes, drinking establishments, dives, pubs, honky-tonks, and back alley speakeasies. Hey, speaking of, let me give a quick shout-out to Randolph's Bar and Lounge in the Warwick Hotel in New York, where a nice glass of bourbon goes down so well while sitting in those fantastic leather couches. So here's to taking everything in moderation, especially moderation. As always, if you got comments about this week's bourbon break, feel free to email me at sid at inventifishing.com. So that's it for this week's bourbon break. Let's get back to the Rodcast. All right, it is time for this week's top 10. And on this week, I want to take a look at surf casting rods since we've been talking to Justin Poe about rods. Now, interestingly, as I was working on this list and thinking about all of the surf casting rods I use and have used, 
had the opportunity to visit with the folks at Mudhole again, the world's largest distributor of rod building parts. And I learned a hell of a lot more about rod component components, particularly about building surf rods. And I really recommend that if you're a serious surf caster, that you check out Mudhole and learn how to custom build a rod that fits your specific needs and fishing tactics. Now, let me be clear here too. I am not sponsored by Mudhole. So this plug is as much about what you can learn about surf casting rods as it is about Mudhole. That is, just learning through Mudhole teaches you about your other rods also. But in all seriousness, you should check out Mudhole and learn how to build your own surf rods. Now, for this list, I'm going to stick to off-the-rack rods and rods that are currently available. I'm also only going to look at rods of 10 feet or longer, so really rods of 10, 12, and 15 feet. That is, I'm not going to look, for instance, at a seven-foot rod that you might use to jig for pompano. Instead, I'm looking at what are categorized as surf casting rods. To that end, too, a lot of these rod series also have shorter versions, but I'm only looking at the longer rods in the series. For example, a rod series might have a 10, 11, and 12-foot rod, and that same series might have an 8, 7, and 6-foot version as well. I'm only going to be talking about those longer surf rods. Now, a lot of the decision about what length rod to use when surf casting has to do with both the distance one needs to cast and the surf conditions. Water with big shore break waves, for example, will require a longer rod in order to keep the rod tip up so that the line reaches over the waves break and wash. If you're casting in relatively calm water to a trough not far off the beach, then a shorter rod will do. Likewise, the rod you choose should match up to the size and weight of the lure or bottom rig you're fishing with. You have to understand, too, that I grew up surf casting and have always been an avid surf caster. In fact, when I was 13 years old, I used my birthday money to buy a Zebco Sport Fisher Series 8015. This is a 15-foot three-part surf rod that I matched with a Daiwa DF100. Not the DF100 giant spin reel that Daiwa still markets, but an earlier version from probably around 1980, 1979. I see both the reel and the rod and the reel available on eBay from time to time, but they're listed is vintage. I still have both and even still fish with them once in a while. But then again, I guess I'm vintage too. I'll also focus this list on spinning rods as I only use spinning rods when surf casting, though there are some great surf rods out there for conventional reels too. I'll also admit that there are a lot of great surf casting rods out there that frankly, I just haven't fished with. So if you have a favorite surf rod that's not on my list, please let me know so I can check it out. You can send me the names of other great surf rods at Sid at InventiveFishing.com. And if you're a surf rod manufacturer, I'd love to hear about your product and maybe get it in our review cycle at Inventive Fishing. So let's get to it. The Fishing Professor's Top 10 Surf Casting Rods. Coming in at number 10 is the rod I fished with for many years, the Shakespeare Tidewater Spinning Rods. Now, the Tidewater Rods have been around for a long time, and the series is available in lengths ranging from a 7-footer up to a 12-footer. I've fished with both the 10-footer and the 12-footer, and really like the 12-footer as a surf casting rod. The blanks on the surf rod version of the Tidewater series are made from a tubular glass, which makes sense since if you're in the surf, you need to say tubular a lot. Yo, dude, that's tubular. The 12-footer is a medium-powered rod that casts well and pretty reliable to lean on with bigger fish. This is a two-piece rod, and I find the ferrule joint very solid. 
At number nine, I've got Daiwa's Beef Stick Surf Rod. The Beef Stick Surf Rod comes in versions at 9, 10, 11, and 12 feet, and they're all medium heavy rods. And the one I use is the 11-footer. It's built on a glass blank, has nine guides, and is a two-piece rod. It's rated for 17 to 40-pound test line, and I use it with 25-pound to increase my casting distance. It's really got a solid butt, and I think it gives me great grip and solid torque on my casts. At number eight, I'm going to go with my St. Croix Mojo Surf Spinning Rod. The Mojo Surf Rod series has a range of sizes from seven feet up to 12 feet, and it's the 11-footer that I use. This is a medium heavy rod with a moderate fast action. The Mojos are built on a graphite blank. The 11-footer is a two-piece rod that has offset ferrules, which give the joint a lot of continuity and strength. It also has a uh, longer than usual butt section that really lets me adjust my hand position for optimizing my cast. Now, I have to confess that it's been a few years since I fished this rod because I broke mine. Not in a dramatic battle with a fish, but in a stupid, clumsy act of buffoonery involving an attempt to carry too much gear into the garage in one trip and ramming the upper portion of the rod into the gap between the garage door and the wall and snapping it in half. I hate it when I break rods, especially when it's because I'm being careless. But enough mourning, let's get on with number seven. And number seven, I'm going to go with my Ugly Stick Big Water Surf Spinning Rod. This series of rods comes in several less than 10-foot versions, down to a 6-foot version, and up to a 15-footer. But I rock the 12-footer, which is a 12, which is a two-piece rod. And I have to say, this is a beefy rod. It's got a lot of strength and it's heavy powered. It's a two-piecer rated for 20 to 40 pound line. One of the things I like about this rod are the ugly tough guides it's got. Okay, at number six, I'm going with the Penn Squadron 3 surf spinning rod in the 12-foot model. I'm a longtime fan of Penn surf rods, pretty much a fan of everything that Penn does. And I love the leanness and power of the Squadron 3. Like many other 12-foot surf rods, the Squadron 3 is rated for 20 to 40-pound line. And I tend to fish this rod with a 30-pound braid. It's a moderate fast action rod rated as a heavy power rod. It's also a two-piece rod. And the blank is a graphite composite blank with graphite reel seat. I really like how this rod casts, and I feel like I can really rely on the strength of this rod to push the cast as hard as I want. All in all, one of these rods that I keep and use because of its versatility and durability. All right, in the number five position, I'm going to go with my Shimano Speedmaster Surf Spinning Rod. This is a rod that I think really lives up to Shimano's hype about its being great for long distance casting. This is rod's handle and butt along with the guide progression and rod strength really optimize casting distance. I go to this rod a lot when I'm casting and retrieving artificials in the two to three ounce range, even though it's rated for lures up to six ounces. To me, this is a great rod for pitching spoons like a three ounce Hopkins no equal spoon to bluefish. I love the diamond wrap on the butt, which not only looks great, but really adds to the no slip grip once the thing starts getting wet. At number four, I'm going to go with one of my newer rods, a rod that was introduced at ICAST in 2021, the Akuma Azores Surf Rod. And I want to thank John Bretza of Akuma for pointing me in the direction of this rod. The Azores Surf Rod is available in a 14-foot and a 15-foot model. I've been using the 14-footer this past year, and I love the anti-slip handle design on this rod and the great Fuji guides on this rod. It casts powerfully and is optimized for distance. Now, unlike a lot of surf rods that are two-piece composites, the Azores is a three-piece rod, which is convenient. 
then I really don't think I lose any strength in the two ferrules as compared with a single ferrule on a two-piece rod. Okay, at number three, I'm going to go with my Lamaglass Surf, Super Surf 2G Pro. Lamaglass is such a great rod building company, and I'm thrilled to fish with several of their rods, but I really like a lot of their surf casting rods, especially the Super Surf 2G Pro. One of the things I like about the Super Surf 2G Pro is the handle and butt, which is a style that's designed by Paco Hernandez. And I've reviewed other rods designed of his, which you can check out on the InventaFishing uh, YouTube page, YouTube channel. The Super Surf 2G Pro is another great Paco style rod. I have the 11 foot version, though there are three 10 foot models and one nine foot version. The Super Surfs are two piece rods that split in a 70 30 divide, unlike a 50 50 or 40 60 that a lot of other rods divide in. Uh, and that's with the exception of one of the 10 foot models, which is a one piece rod. The 11 footer is a medium heavy power rod with fast action. It casts just as smooth and as beautifully as any rod I've ever used. It's got a thick handled butt that feels solid in your hands. All in all, this is just a great surf rod. And like I said, I really like what Lamaglass does with its rods. Plus, I like the blue color design of the Surf 2G Pro. It's just so pretty. Okay, in the runner-up position at number two, I'm going to go back to Shimano and their Tiralejo spinning rods in the 12-foot version. Now, the Tiralejo rods are long cast rods designed for maximum casting power. These are the rods I like when the surf is up and I have to get the cast out farther than on a calm day. The 12-footer is a two-piece rod with moderate fast action and medium heavy power. The rear grip length in the butt is a full 24 inches, a lot, lot longer than a lot of other surf casting rods. And I really think it contributes to the ability to cast this rod long distance, as do the Fuji Alkanite guides. Really, it was hard not to rank this as my number one rod, because as far as surf casting rods go, this is about as ideal as a surf rod is that you can get out there. However, we do have the professor's number one surf rod, surf casting rod ahead, but let's get a quick recap of the ones that lead us up to number one. At number 10, Shakespeare's Tidewater Spinning Rod. At number nine, Daiwa's Beefstick Surf Rod. At number eight, St. Croix's Mojo Surf Spinning Rod. At number seven, Ugly Stick's Big Water Surf Casting Rod. At six, Pen Squadron 3. Five, Shimano Speedmaster Surf Spinning at number four, the Akuma Azor Surf Rod. At number three, Super Surf 2G Pro by Lamaglass. At number two, Shimano's Trialejo Spinning. And that brings us to my favorite surf rod, surf casting rod. And that's Lamaglass's Carbon Surf Rod. This is just one of those rods that you just know when you cast it the first time that a lot of thought went into the design of this rod. And given Lamaglass's long history of designing surf casting rods since uh, I think the late 1940s, you wouldn't expect anything less from Lamaglass. The carbon surf rods are built on 30-ton carbon blanks that are about as strong as any rod I've fished. They have great flex and power on the cast. All of Lamaglass's carbon surf rods are two-piece rods, and they come in sizes of 9, 10, 10 and, a half, and 11 feet. I like the 11-footer, which is available in a heavy and a medium-heavy version. I have the medium-heavy. I love the versatility of this rod, and I fish it with artificials, live bait, and on the bottom with cut bait. It really is my go-to surf rod. Okay, so that's the top 10 for this week, but you know, 
I want to add an anticipatory nod to a rod that has just come out that I'm really eager to fish with because of its design. And that's the newly released or soon to be released Daiwa Tournament Ballistic Surf Rod. This thing has got such a lightweight but seriously powerful blank that I'm betting it's going to be a great rod to fish with. Plus the adjustable weighted butt seems like a great innovation. But what really has my eye on this rod are the new ferrules for this three-piece rod, which, unlike a lot of composite rods, allow for consistent flex between the rod and the ferrules. So, yeah, I'm eager to get my hands on this one, and I'm sure it will be a top 10 candidate as soon as I do. So that really is the top 10 plus a bonus track for this week. And as always, if you think I've overlooked a surf casting rod that I should look at, or if you're a rod manufacturer and you'd like me to take a look at your product, just give me a shout at Sid at InventofFishing.com. And as always, if you'd like a fishing professor's top 10 about a particular fishing related thing, just send me an email and I'll see about adding it to my list for future top 10s. Well, my listening crew, I have some bad news, some sad news, because we have reached the end of another episode, and nothing I can do or say is going to change that fact. Time waits for no one. Or as the great poetic collaboration of Gilmore Rogers, Mason, and Wright so aptly teach us, ticking away the moments that make up the dull day, fritter and waste the hours in an offhand way. Kicking around on a piece of ground in your hometown, waiting for someone or something to show you the way. Well, that was a terrible rendition of that. But my listening crew, the way is to wait for next week's episode as it races around to come up behind you again. Hey, I want to thank Justin Poe, the rod guru, for taking the time to teach us a thing or three about fishing rods. I do hope that you found my thoughts about Walcott bourbon interesting enough that you're going to have to give the bottle a try. And I hope that you have a better picture of the kinds of surf rods that you might want to use as conveyed in this week's top 10 countdown. Now, before I sign off, I do have a message for our brothers and sisters out there behind the line. The Marlin are in the canyon. I say again, the Marlin are in the canyon. And that just about does it for this week's episode of the Fishing Professor Rodcast. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday when another great episode of the Rodcast drops. And please be sure to share the Rodcast with all of your fishing, drinking, and lying friends. And of course, if you have a comment, question about anything on this week's show or have recommendations for future Top 10's Bourbon Breaks interviews or information about specific fishing-related issues, please feel free to email me at sid at inventafishing.com or leave a reply in any of the comment sections for any of the podcast platforms you use to listen to the Rodcast. Be sure to follow Inventive Fishing on Twitter, Instagram, and friend us on Facebook at Inventive Fishing. And be sure to check out all of the great video content over on the Inventive Fishing YouTube channel, which includes great gear reviews, new product introductions, and a mess of other fantastic content. I will be back next week with another episode. Until then, this is Sid Dobrin, the fishing professor. Fish on! The Fishing Professor Show is copyrighted by Inventive Fishing, LLC. Any rebroadcast of the podcast without the consent from Inventive Fishing, LLC is strictly prohibited. Fish on!